and it gives us a snapshot of what's going on in the cancer cell. They're putting it in personal care products, in toothpaste, toothbrush. And I was really interested in what made people stick with their GP. Cannabinoids are any compounds that have similar effects to cannabis. We can look at what's happening in the blood and that can paint a fuller picture. The issue is that no country's got this right. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Hi, I'm Jake Morecambe. Welcome to Think Health. Today on the show... What isn't so clear is the level at which the alcohol consumption causes those issues. So is one drink okay to have a week? Are three drinks okay to have a week if you have one on three nights? We we don't know the level. Is it okay to have one drink when you're pregnant? We'll be looking into why there is little research to back this up and the high rates of suicide among transgender youth. That's today on Think Health. The mental health of LGBTIQ people is among the poorest in Australia, who are two times more likely to have experienced a high level of psychological distress as their heterosexual peers. A survey headed by Liam Casey and John McAloon from the University of Technology, Sydney, is gathering insight into how the current marriage equality postal survey is either boosting community morale or making these distresses worse. We're primarily interested in the the impact of this discussion and the survey on the mental health and well-being of LGBTI people. And what we figure is that as this debate unfolds and moves into different phases, so it's coming to crunch time soon, and then after crunch time there'll be some government decision, down the track at some point there'll be some resolution and laws will be changed. I don't think there's any doubt about that, it's more a matter of when. But being able to map the changes in well-being and mental health and sense of efficacy, depression, anxiety, those sorts of things, over that period of time allows us to see how the climate and the government's response has an impact on a a portion of our community. There would be some people who might already be experiencing things like depression and anxiety, and they may find that exacerbated by what's going on in in the press and the general public at the moment. Uh, There may be other people who are doing pretty well, pretty smooth sailing, and find that this is affecting them. I know there's been a lot of commentary uh, sort of online of people who say it brings up a lot of feelings of being back in high school and some of the, the depression and anxiety that can accompany that for LGBTQI people. Mm. One thing that I think we kind of started to consider recently was uh, that we hadn't originally considered was the sense of anger mm. that people are feeling, members of that community are feeling, particularly in response to the High Court, which really affirmed the government's position, I think. Perception was that it affirmed the government's position sense of anger, sense of frustration, sense of being singled out. And and we know those things have implications for people's sense of well-being, people's mental health down the track. Have you got from any responses that people feel like they're somewhat being misrepresented or misspoken for? I would say um, perhaps not that they feel misrepresented or misspoken for, but they feel a little powerless. You know, this very big conversation is taking place that they feel affects them at the end of the day and they're really out of control of that there's only so much individual people feel like they can do and so I guess there's a sense of frustration born out of that and frustration that it remains non-binding that this can continue on for some time 
nothing really needs or nothing is 100% promised beyond this postal survey. Yeah, absolutely. In Ireland, you know, there was a very clear process laid out by what was required by law. Although the High Court did affirm the government's position, this we really didn't have a precedent for it in Australia. And there's nothing to indicate that a yes or no result either way is really going to settle this issue for anybody. Why track people's experiences over time? Really, this is a fairly standard way of doing research. What we want to see is how change occurs for people over time. We will see different things happen as the survey unfolds. So there's a survey, then there's a high court response to the government's position. Then the survey will close. Then the government will announce the results of the survey. Then government will announce a position. We're looking at two sorts of things. We're looking at things that we know very, your mood changes on a day-to-day basis, that sort of stuff. But your sense of who you are, your sense of your efficacy or sense of fairly stable personality type things generally remains pretty stable over time. So those two things we anticipate will move around quite a lot for people as the process unfolds. Sampling people over time allows us to see how things change for them given changes in the environment. Do you think it's solely dependent on that and I guess what happens or what unfolds politically because you say there, you know, this would eventually become legislation but you seem quite confident that, you know, at some point in time we'll move towards that direction. Do you think people can be as optimistic themselves to say, you know, that this is going to happen? Yeah, it's tough to say. I feel it might be one of those situations where kind of can't see the forest for the trees. As much as people might say logically to themselves, this is going to happen, this is inevitable. When it feels so drawn out, it can be difficult to really convince yourself of that. You know, I think people might feel, you know, they feel it more than they think it. They they feel this will never happen, even though they know that's not really, probably not the case. This inescapability, was that something that also came up, just that people can't get away from this conversation? Or they're too ingrained into it? That's an interesting uh, question, the idea of being too ingrained. There's definitely the sense that people can't escape it even when they want to. You know, you cannot watch a news update. You cannot sit on a bus and listen to your fellow passengers without coming across something about this issue at the moment. It's interesting to see whether that is engaging for people, whether they feel, you know, engaged with an issue that's affecting them or if they feel worn down by it. There are certainly some responses so far that sort of fall on both sides of that coin. People... There might be a bit of a sense of community. Uh, we've seen a lot of rallies and a really real upsurge in community events and activism in response to this, which could be seen as a positive. But on the other hand, people, uh, as I said earlier, feel really individually worn down. And what do you think that leads to psychologically or what can that lead to in other instances where people are so worn out by something? We know when, when that happens, when people are under chronic stress, when people are feel disenfranchised when people feel they've been isolated from society for whatever reason, that that does have consequences for their well-being, for their affect, for anxiety, stress. And we know those things have implications for physical health as well as mental health. You know, something Liam was saying just before was made me think, it's okay for somebody to disagree with you. It's okay for somebody to have an opinion that's different from yours. The interesting thing here, or one of the interesting things here, is the way that that disagreement is justified. So a portion of our community should not have equal rights with the rest of our community. There's a position, you know, we can agree or disagree on that. But then watching the range of justifications that come along to support that difference of opinion, uh, I think is the thing that's causing a lot of discomfort for LGBTQI people. 
And you raised, and this is a bit of a tangent, but you were talking about data there before, and Liam, that was something that you raised, that there is an absence of it in this area. Is it because something like this has never really been on the cards before? We just don't have access to that information. Yeah, absolutely. This is quite interesting from a research point of view because obviously the marriage equality debate has been going on in Australia for several years now. So it's always been on the cards, so it's been quite difficult to gather data on that because it's an issue that's never gone away. So you can't really separate people's responses to that debate from their responses to other day-to-day stresses in their lives, and that's works, relationships, um, that sort of thing. But now it's, it's really come to a head and this issue has become all-consuming that it is kind of having a direct effect that, um, that may be quantifiable on Australians. And, yeah, this allows us to capture it for the first time in a way that we haven't been able to before. Where do you think we go from here? Seeing as this has been such a contentious and hot topic now, as you'd mentioned, for a couple of years, do you imagine us reaching a peak when it comes to research and discourse around this and then it dropping back down? Because I know as a queer Australian, we need to continue to rally for queer and LGBTIQ causes. There is a big concern within the transgender community too that if the marriage equality debate continues, we get it, then everyone will forget about other queer Australians. Do you... Do you see that there would be a research interest, say, for example, post-marriage equality, looking at the mental health implications of transgender equal rights? I, I really hope so. Uh, that's definitely a hope and an interest of mine, uh, something a lot of the people have contacted me uh, while we've been collecting participants for this survey, saying, what about the experience of you know, group X, Y, Z, you know, uh, people who, despite us capturing anyone within the LGBTQI community, we may not have been directly looking to recruit. Uh, I'm thinking, for example, of people who are married to transgender people. They may not identify as LGBTQI themselves, but being in that really close relationship in a sort of LGBTQI context, they're also feeling the effects of this debate. I certainly hope that down the track, uh, research will become more engaged with, with those people and really represent their experiences, both positive and negative. I think it's also interesting from the point of view that this is an example of one of those elements of social change there's an opportunity here for legislation to lead to change. And while that's the case, it doesn't mean that everything will be hunky-dory once that legislation has passed. There's certainly a potential to see some residual effects, not only of this discussion, but also of prejudice in general towards LGBTQI people. And I think that's where research like this can go to inform how we discuss, how we talk, and how we respond in the future. Liam Casey, master's student, and John McAloon, senior lecturer in clinical psychology, both from the Graduate School of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney. What do you do when your job is taken by a robot? Where does all your e-waste go? How do you split your digital assets when you break up with your partner? This is Think Digital Futures. Each week, an exploration of the moral and mind-boggling questions that face us in the digital age. You can listen on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Digital Futures. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3. You've probably heard the saying that one glass of red wine a night is good for your health. But does that also apply when you're pregnant? 
Vanessa Scarf from the Centre for Midwifery, Child and Family Health at the University of Technology, Sydney, says there's very little research into whether or not alcohol is okay during the term of pregnancy, leaving many of these questions unanswered. However, social taboos and concerns about health of the child see many women already abstain from drinking altogether during pregnancy. Vanessa spoke with Miles Herbert. I think I think essentially the social taboo comes from the known fact that alcohol is what we would call a teratogen, which is a substance that is actually toxic to fetal development. It's a basic fact that alcohol is harmful to use during pregnancy. Has it always been common knowledge or is that something that's developed over time? Ever since I've been practising as a midwife, we have always recommended that women abstain from drinking alcohol in pregnancy. So this has been a long-term thing. I think that... Uh, It was recognised that babies born to women who had heavy alcohol consumption during pregnancy were obviously born with problems, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And as it suggests, that's a disorder that has a variety of issues, some of which are actually physical, I wouldn't call them deformities, but characteristics and features. So we talked about that it being common knowledge, but is there research that shows there are serious effects from the alcohol? What we do know, and what, we, and what I suggested before, is that we've seen babies born to women who have consumed high amounts of alcohol in pregnancy are obviously born with problems. And they range from uh, you know, physical features all the way through to some you know, minor behavioural issues. There's a combination of things throughout that spectrum. What isn't so clear is the level at which the alcohol consumption causes those issues. So is one drink okay to have a week? Are three drinks okay to have a week if you have one on three nights? We, we don't know the level because everybody metabolises alcohol in a different way. Alcohol has a different effect on everybody. So in order for us to be safe rather than sorry, we recommend that no alcohol consumption is safe in pregnancy because we don't know the level at which alcohol consumption in pregnancy causes a problem. Do you have any you know, personal experience where there was a woman who, who drank during pregnancy and, and they even consumed very little and it had a negative health impact? I haven't, I haven't uh, had that experience. And, and it's, it, it's actually not a, not a very easy thing to know because if you don't know about the alcohol consumption, then you don't know about the potential effects on the baby after the baby was born. One thing that was revealed is that they found that in a couple of the studies that even a small amount of alcohol consumption in pregnancy, so they've considered up to 32 grams a week, which is essentially in Australian terms three three standard drinks, that it has been associated with smaller for gestational age babies, which means that babies are, are, are born slightly smaller than, than they potentially would have been had the mother not drunk. So on a population level, we can say that when we have looked at women who have had heavy alcohol consumption, these are the outcomes. And what about the mother? Is there other health implications for the mother uh, as well? Alcohol actually has health implications for everybody. It's it's the reason why a large proportion of people are admitted to hospital every year. It's, it's a socially acceptable social lubricant, isn't it? Mm. But... Um, it's not great for everybody. I know that there's a lot of research that suggests that, you know, one glass of red wine protects you against heart disease and that sort of thing. You know, that, that's starting to be, you know, getting a bit wobbly, that research. 
so whilst you know drinking the odd glass of alcohol as a as a non-pregnant person is is enjoyable and probably not detrimental you know we don't really know why do you think some women think that it's okay to have one glass of red wine during pregnancy i think that for some women the advice is not very clear perhaps their health professional has said oh it's okay you know, one glass of wine is going to be fine. And look, it probably is. But in terms of a public health message and in terms of keeping everybody safe and healthy, certainly the recommended action for, you know, from all health professionals is to abstain from alcohol use if you're planning to become pregnant, certainly during pregnancy and during breastfeeding as well. So when is too much, right? If there is, if the one is maybe okay and two is maybe okay, when, is there a definitive line that this is too much? I've never come across a woman who chooses to do something in her pregnancy that could potentially harm the baby. It may be more of a reassurance. Uh, a lot of women don't know they're pregnant very early on and may have had some alcohol in that time. That generally is okay and there's nothing you can do about that situation. We may look closely, you know, closely monitor the pregnancy, but by and large those pregnancies tend to go ahead. If the alcohol consumption ceases, then there generally isn't a problem or not a problem that we can identify. How could we know? This is the problem with researching alcohol consumption in pregnancy. We don't know if there is a safe level. So we can't randomise women to drinking and not drinking one glass of wine a week or two glasses of wine a week. It, it's just not ethically feasible. Yeah, so how, how would you guys go about researching that? If it's not ethical, how, how do we get information around it then? There have been some research projects into this. Often they're, you know, retrospective. They might recruit women to describe their alcohol consumption in pregnancy. That can have its issues. There are all sorts of biases that, that become you know, obvious in that situation, maybe people don't recall the amount of alcohol that they've drunk uh, at any particular time. There may be a reluctance to be completely honest about that. It, it's, a, it's a difficult thing to, to research. Do you think that it might be harder to research because there is a really big social taboo around drinking during pregnancy? And, and when you ask women about, hey, did you drink during your pregnancy, they might be unwilling to talk about it because they feel as if they might have done something wrong? Certainly. Certainly, I think that that would, would de very much be a factor. Social taboos are very powerful and, and they would probably influence women to be very reluctant to be honest about their lifestyle, perhaps in the early stages of, the, of their pregnancy, before we would have contact with them, uh, even women who, who are struggling with um, an alcohol addiction. What we're very, very dedicated to as health professionals, midwives and, and doctors is to help women to be as healthy as they can in their pregnancy. And so we, we strongly encourage women to disclose any of that information to us because without judgment, we are then dedicated to, to help them deal with, with the issue that they feel they have. You know, having a baby is a is a is a fundamental changing time in your life, and and often it can be the time that that you really turn your life around. We certainly don't recommend drinking during breastfeeding either. Alcohol is water soluble essentially, so it passes through the membranes of the body very easily. So it certainly is present in breast milk immediately after and for up to two to three hours after the drink has been consumed. And, you know, alcohol behaviour in the home, it does impact on the family. 
and on children. And we, we've seen advertisements on the television about, you know, kids getting their parents a beer from the fridge and, and you know, and then that child, you know, the next generation, the next generation. I think that there is a very strong health message that curbing alcohol consumption is, is a healthy option. Vanessa Scarf, lecturer in the Faculty of Health from the University of Technology, Sydney, speaking to Miles Herbert. Nearly half of young transgender people in Australia have attempted suicide at some point in their lives. This figure comes from the Trans Pathways Report released at the beginning of the month, the largest study ever conducted around the mental health of trans and gender-diverse young people in Australia. Young trans people also face numerous barriers when it comes to seeking help from medical or mental health services, with a lack of education and understanding limiting access to appropriate care. Penelope Strauss, lead author of the Trans Pathways Research, spoke with Joanna Cabot, reporter for The Wire Radio. Yes, so Trans Pathways found that the mental health issues that trans young people are facing in Australia are quite high, with about 48% of trans young people ever attempting suicide, and that's about 20 times higher than what's seen in adolescents in the general Australian population. And we're also seeing high rates of depression, around 74.6%, and also high rates of anxiety at about 72%. So these are all quite worrying statistics that we're finding. And the study also looked at some potential drivers for poor mental health. So we asked young people about some experiences that they may have been faced with, such as peer rejection and bullying, and these rates were quite high as well, with almost 90% of young people experiencing peer rejection, about 74% experiencing bullying, 78.9% had issues with school, university or TAFE, 68% had experienced discrimination and almost 66% had experienced a lack of family support, which is a really big deal for a young person growing up in Australia. How can we explain that trans young people have such a poor mental health and self-esteem? Yeah, so I think these issues stem back to society generally and that's what young people told us in the report that you know they were faced with these troubling experiences at home with their parents and other family members not sort of embracing and accepting them and then also at school they'd go to school which is supposed to be a supportive place where young people can learn and they were still having troubles there whether it was with their peers or with teachers And then also um, other young people talked about work experiences that they'd had that had been quite negative. So really, if you're a young person growing up and you're facing these negative experiences throughout all these places that you're sort of going to in your day-to-day life, that's quite a hard time to be going through. The study have also shown that trans young people are seeking for help to health specialists or medical and mental health services. Do you think those services are helping enough? Yeah, so I think with both medical and mental health services, what we're seeing is that service providers who are trans-friendly and aware of gender diversity, these providers have very long waiting lists and young people report waiting months and months to see these people. And then, you know, those are months where the young person is feeling quite isolated. Um, And then also young people who had seen other services, other health professionals had reported that these health professionals you know, often didn't understand them, had no experience with gender diversity or would tell them what they were going through was just a phase, which is quite invalidating of a person's identity, especially at a young age. 
And so overall what we found is about 60% of young people reported that they felt isolated from medical and mental health services and 42% had reached out to a service provider who did not understand, respect or have previous experience with gender diverse people. What can be done to raise awareness and help the young trans people to improve their well-being? So the government, what we found in the report, the government really needs to be funding more services that are specific for gender-diverse young people and adults as well. Often adult services are also lacking. But overall, I think it really comes down to education. So education for health professionals, they need to have gender diversity as a part of their curriculum. We need to be seeing upskilling of current service providers so that they become more aware of gender diversity. But then also programs that do sort of educate and make young people and their parents aware of gender diversity are really quite necessary to um, stop these negative experiences from happening. And this all needs to come from both, as you said, the government and society as broadly. Penelope Strauss, lead author of the Trans Pathways Research, speaking with The Wire reporter Joanna Cabot. The Wire is a community-run national current affairs radio program that broadcasts across the country. It plays on 2SER five nights a week at 6pm, operating out of our Broadway studios on Mondays and Tuesdays. For more stories like that one, you can head to thewire.org.au. That's all we have time for today on Think Health. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe to us on either iTunes or your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Health. This show is a collaboration between the University of Technology Sydney and 2SCR Radio. I'm Jake Morecambe. I'll catch you next time.